We're back again with the new edition of Beauty GPS in the Raw. I'm your navigator, Mary Shook. Beauty GPS is meant to help you, the listener, navigate through all your beauty and wellness questions through licensed experts and practitioners that have agreed to sit in my hot seat so that you, the listener, can ask them questions live every first and third Saturday at noon Eastern Standard Time. All you have to do is dial into our hotline found at beautygps.com or you can just listen as you are now every second and fourth Saturday. The raw version is the long format of the show where we basically just edit out the bloopers. There's just too much information to miss. The regular show gives you the important highlights for those of you who are short on time or attention. This week, we talk about one of the most effective yet controversial treatments in the anti-aging world, microneedling. Who better to join us in the hot seat than one of the world's most premier educators and practitioners on microneedling but Dr. Lance Setterfield? We discuss whether home rollers are a good idea, what ingredients are best to microneedle with, and dispel rumors from a cellular biologist that microneedling is damaging. Now sit back and enjoy the journey. And thanks for listening. Dr. Lance Satterfield, welcome to the hot seat. Thank you very much for inviting me, Mary. There's a treatment called microneedling that has been exploding everywhere. You have doctors and dermatologists and spas doing it. And then again, so is the public. You've been working with skin cancer, anti-aging, and microneedling since the 1980s. And I'm concerned about the safety and misinformation on the consumer in which... That's why I brought you on the show today. And I was also concerned that there's a cellular biologist named Wendy Oriole that did an interview with the New York Times saying to avoid microneedling, which we'll get into later. Can you quickly tell me a bit about how you came across microneedling and what it is? It was pretty much by chance where I went to a conference on Botox and fillers and met another physician who introduced me to microneedling. And initially I thought that this was, in fact, too simple and probably just a gimmick. I was skeptical, but then I was also disillusioned with all the treatment modalities that were being sold to us as practitioners in the form of Fraxel, etc., that weren't as effective as I was promised by the manufacturers when they sold me the equipment. So I started looking for a new angle and a distinctive difference, and so I pursued the microneedling. And after a few years, I saw that, wow, there was something to this. I was getting great results. It piqued my curiosity, and I started researching on how it was possible to get these results. Ended up writing a book in 2010. And then things have evolved ever since then, and I'm now on to the third edition of my book where Some of the ideas we had originally have been tossed out and we've moved on and trying to perfect things day by day. And you were really ahead of the curve because a lot of doctors are only just recently getting into microneedling with the PRP and all of that. It's your keen eye that said, hey, listen, you know what these machines are promising? I don't think I'm seeing it. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing results from this other thing called microneedling. You just seem very perceptive in what it is that you're observing. Well, it wasn't just me observing it. It was my my patients that went and told their friends. And I think that's what's driving this on the internet. Physicians are now starting to wake up to the fact that, hey, there is a new kid on the block. And it's because patients are coming in and demanding this because they go on websites and forums and show their own undoctored, unphotoshopped pictures 
and describe real result in the absence of an industry spin. You know, my patients were complaining they weren't getting results with those other treatment modalities or they were getting complications. And my life is far less stressful now because this is much lower risk. I mean, there's still complications if not done appropriately. Uh, and I get a little bit nervous when people uh, want to do the do-it-yourself and treatments at home and maybe buy my book in, in order to circumnavigate the system and not have to pay a professional big money. But certainly in the right hands, this is a very powerful treatment modality that uh, is l lower risk than the average treatments out there today. We'll, we'll go into actually home use and versus professional use. First, I want to talk about the different tools that are out there. You have a roller, which looks like like a little roller with needles. There's a stamp that looks like what it sounds like, a stamp that has needles in it. And then you have these machines that are almost like tattoo machines that are automatic and they go at a high pace or frequency. And it is very similar to a tattoo machine. Now, do you have a preference? Is one better than the other? Like which, which is the best one to use in your own opinion as a professional? And then which is the best as a consumer if we even think consumers should be doing this? So as an independent educator, I try not to promote any one Brand. I have one or two favorites of my own, but that doesn't mean to say that there aren't others in the world that are not great either. And each of these tools has its advantages and disadvantages. For instance, rollers, the size of the cartridge may preclude easy treatment in confined areas like under the nose or around the eyes or on the nose, whereas on big open spaces like a back or a chest or an abdomen, one can really get the job done quite quickly. Pens, on the other hand, you can adjust the needle length, whereas on a roller, you pretty much pick the needle length you want to use. And that is a problem in that different areas on the body are different thicknesses. And so a roller is not adequate to treat all areas on even the face, for instance. Whereas with a pen, you can adjust the length and treat the same face with the same cartridge, thus reducing your overhead or your cost per cartridge. Um, but then the problem with the pens is that the cartridge tends to have fewer needles, which in turn is then compensated by the speed that these motors fire at of up to 150 times in a second. But you've got a tight configuration of these needles so you can only treat a small area at once and then it's easy to miss an area depending on your technique and if you do get post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation then you end up with stripes or patches. It's difficult difficult to say use this or, or use that. It, it all depends on your scope of practice and your proficiency. But certainly there are poor quality devices in both the rollers where the needles fall out and in the pens where the motors are too weak. Or the needles potentially have shrapnel hanging off the sides that could be deposited into the skin and maybe cause scarring or granulomas. So it's, it's really quite a complex question that you're asking there and there's no easy answer. But it's something that you have explained in your books. I have, but it's more on a generic basis of here's what to look for in you know quality of needles, motor strength, uh, needle configuration, and what you're trying to treat. And then there's battery 
battery-operated versus direct wiring to the wall. So all of these things can be a benefit, but also a negative issue, such as running out of power in the middle of the treatment if your battery goes flat. Or if the cartridge gets stuck and you don't know it and you're scratching it across your customer's face. So that (laughs) could be one of many things that could malfunction, I think, in the motor types of uh, equipment. But... You know, in the rollers for myself, I used to use the rollers because that was really what was available in the beginning, and they came at, like, really long depths, um, and there was mm-hmm. no jurisdiction for our license as to what depth you could go into and so on. But over time, I had learned that the rollers actually don't insert. They could tear as they roll. So instead of actually getting that direct penetration, and that's what we want is that penetration and stimulation, it's creating more of a tear. So that would be, I think, one disadvantage to the roller. But the other would also be the fact that in the beginning, it was about how many needles you could get. The The way that they made these rollers were more like slices, like little triangles versus actual needles that would do these mm-hmm. micro slices versus an actual punctures. For me, I'm not a fan of the rollers, and I just wanted to hear what your experience, because you've had a lot more time with this. I only started mm-hmm. maybe in the beginning 2000s with this. Um, I actually had done like soft tap training and so on uh, with the tattoo world, and that's actually where I first got introduced to it through scar work with one of my trainers. So that's how I first got into this. And he was actually making his own microneedles uh, as a micro stamp and so on. It was really cool. And he showed how he was breaking down scar tissue. And I just was obsessed with product penetration and saying, how can we better deliver these ingredients? That's why I'm asking, what's the difference with the roller? I love the stamp. I think the machines have its pros and cons. That's what I want to know from you. Okay. So... Just before I forget, the product infusion is also a can of worms that uh, is no longer the greatest emphasis. Back in the old days, we used to try and infuse things. Now we've discovered that infusing rent products into the skin cause more problem than benefit. But coming back to Rollivus Pen, from the patient perspective, a pen is probably a preferred treatment for them because it doesn't hurt as much. What the roller is that if you... If you push down harder than you ought to, the drum prevents the needle from going in any deeper than the selected length. So, I mean, you'll see on websites that people will say, oh, yeah, they pushed too hard on my skin and, you know, the needle went in too deep. The needle can only go in the exact depth because the roller prevents it from going in. The drum prevents it from going in any further. Whereas with a pen... You have a hollow area with the needles inside it, and if you push too hard, the skin can go up inside the cartridge, and now you have a different penetration depth than the pen is set to. So that is an issue. And then it just shows you what marketing can do to the perception of the public. You mentioned there that rollers tear the skin. That was something that Dermapen came up with in order to crush the roller market so that they could get ahead with their devices. And in actual fact, if the needle from a pen is going into the skin 150 times in a second, you have no idea whether the needle is in the skin or out of the skin as you move the device across the skin. So in actual fact, you're tearing the skin like with a jigsaw action. And so both of these things are scratching the skin, if you will. The great thing about it is that it is micro-injury and therefore 
the inflammatory cascade is less and therefore the ability for the body to form a scar due to that challenge is less. And you talk about pyramid-type needles, if you will, or shapes, triangular shapes, and then sometimes not made from metal but rather from plastic, etc. Then that's referred to as nano-channeling, if you will or nano-needling. And all that is is really another marketing ploy to get around estheticians in certain states not being permitted to use uh, needles. But what it does tell you, because they do get results from that, is that any irritation of the skin is going to induce some kind of response. And we see that when you write with a pen or you wear shoes that are too tight for you. The irritation of the skin induces a reaction in that area and you get thickening of the skin. Actually, I, I was the first person to bring that from the medical world because they were using that for drug delivery. And the device that they had looked similar to what they were trying to use as a dermapen because before you were just hand stamping it into the skin. So they put the plates on something so that they could administer it into the skin. And then from there, what I found is that the chip at the edge would tear at someone's skin if you didn't go directly down onto the skin. So I went back to the company and said, listen, this is flawed and you're going to create these scratches across the skin. And so I said, you know what, I'm not touching this. At a couple companies later, someone got into it and they worked around those issues. It was definitely done for drug delivery, but as far as that collagen stimulation and so on, I, I don't think it's going to do the same thing as the actual needle depth. Let's talk about the different needle depths that someone can work with and what's kind of like BS and what is the most ideal needle length for anti-aging? I don't like focusing on the needle length because that is sort of a paint-by-numbers where you're not thinking about the skin. I I like you to think about what is your target and what are you trying to accomplish. So which cells are you trying to target and why? And what is the effect when you touch down on that cell and wake it up? As I often mention, Skin thickness varies, so on on different areas of our body, for instance, the back is much thicker than the face, the eyelid is very thin, etc. Then there's an age factor where the older you are, the thinner generally your skin is. Then there's the male versus female factor where men's skin tends to be thicker. Putting things into neat little boxes according to needle length just doesn't work. We have to put it into the context of the patient and what we're trying to treat. I love that. Having said that, the, you know, and the, the legal concept in this industry is that cosmetic needling is a 0.2 or a 0.3, and that medical needling is a 0.5 to maybe a 2.5, and then three millimeters is surgical. But that's just a classification that keeps the lawyers happy and keeps um, <laughs> licensing bodies happy that everybody is playing in their sandbox according to the length of the needle. But it's not the length of the needle that determines scope of practice, it's the condition that one is treating. So if you're treating a wrinkle, that's maybe an esthetician's role. And if you're treating melasma, that's a medical condition, and then that's a physician's area of expertise. Don't focus on the needle length. And then one has to understand that there are two with collagen induction anyway, there are two pathways that are triggered depending on needle length. 
So if you're treating the epidermis, you're going to get a cascade that leads to collagen induction that is non-inflammatory. The moment you go into the dermis, you break a platelet open and it releases its chemical stimuli that produces a whole different pathway and mechanism for collagen induction from different cells. So one is collagen induction through collagen synthesized and secreted by keratinocytes of all things. Most people think that it's the fibroblast that makes collagen, but the keratinocyte also makes collagen. So we have to start defining you know, what type of collagen are we talking about. Not all, all collagens are equal and not all collagens live in the same place. Especially with laser, because when people talk about stimulating collagen with laser, it's that granular type 1 collagen and it doesn't seem, it's rigid, it doesn't reproduce collagen, it's like a one and done, and then it's just a, a race to the bottom, where I feel like with microneedling, it's something that is continually building and enhancing, and it's a lifestyle, uh, would you not say? It's slow and steady wins the race. It's not like you can go to the gym once a month and get results. So, <laughs> you know, you pretty much eat for the rest of your life unless you're suicidal, and your skin is the same way. You need to nudge it along and just encourage it to optimize its cell function in order to get the best results possible. So it is a long-term project, if you will. But coming back to your point about the granular type 1 collagen, there is a misconception that scar tissue is different to collagen. And in actual fact, scar tissue is collagen, it's just that normal collagen has a different configuration in that the fibers are laid down in a basket weave pattern, whereas scar collagen, the fibrils are thicker and they are laid down in parallel bundles, which gives you that weird folding to the skin, if you will, and the stiffness and rigidity. But it just doesn't seem like it ever reproduces again. I, I've, I've, it becomes rigid and then as it ages, it kind of collapses. If you've done a lot of heat, it seems like it's really hard to revive that collagen again. Well, Mary, the reason for that is heat shock protein 47 that is uh, triggered with those heat treatment modalities is well known to cause scar tissue. Mm -hmm. And when you have a scar and as you age, your normal collagen deteriorates and is depleted, you're basically left with that scar tissue and that's why you know 30 years from now it ain't pretty yeah so we do, we do lose the ability to make collagen as we get older but the article you wish to discuss later um, incorrectly <laughs> assumes collagen production ceases well collagen production never ceases until you expire we'll go at that in a minute spoke about products and ingredients to use with microneedling and before everyone was just putting anything on the skin and now you're saying not a good idea why well it depends so define putting on the skin and when so are we talking cosmetic needling or are we talking medical microneedling what would a consumer and an esthetician because they should be kind of close. What should they be microneedling? So consumer and esthetician infusion with epidermal injury is less of a concern 
than the medical treatments where the product is actually infusing down into the dermis and therefore the system. And I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this statement because there are a lot of companies that are making products that they say are completely safe to use with microneedling and designed to use with microneedling, etc. But as the FDA starts focusing on this, and they certainly have come down with some statements recently, they're going to be clamping down on on infusion of products that are not drugs. So certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, we've been infusing all sorts of cosmetic products into the skin with good benefit in some cases. But now as more people have climbed on the bandwagon and want to be different from other people, they're recommending weirder and weirder ingredients to infuse. And if these are, for the most part, not native to our body, it triggers an immune response. And trouble is brewing in the land of microneedling. We're starting to see more sensitivities, sensitive skins, allergic reactions. We're starting to see post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And in fact, we're starting to see scarring. People will say, okay, well, microneedling is colorblind and therefore completely safe to use in all skin types. And in isolation, that is true. And there are some studies showing that the MSH cascade, et cetera, has decreased after microneedling. But you start throwing chemical peels and photosensitizers and some of these other things into the mix. Post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is caused by precisely that. The greater your inflammatory response, um, the greater the risk of PIH, and especially in higher or darker skin, like higher Fitzpatrick's. This is where a lot of people are getting into trouble. And then they've extrapolated Dr. Fernandez's um, studies from way back that were pertaining to rollers. They've extrapolated that into the pen realm. Pens make more holes than rollers do in the time frame that we are treating, which means a greater inflammatory cascade. And then we're putting PRP on the skin and chemical peels on the skin at the same time or combining these treatment modalities with RF, etc. And you've just got the perfect storm where you've got too much inflammation and that's going to cause scarring, premature aging and PIH. So the very things that are attractive for microneedling are now being countered by getting greedy and trying to add all these extras to them. We know specifically that an ingredient for both of us that's a difficulty is hyaluronic acid. And I would say that that's in maybe 95% of those things that are concentrated into the skin. I personally have issues with hyaluronic acid that I've made very public, but what, what would be your issue or what you found it to be difficult and could it be causing those sensitivities that you're talking about? It could be. I mean, it's, it's difficult when people send you a label that's got 20 things on it and they say, I've had a reaction and, you know, what do you think the problem is? Which one do you blame? And when yep. we look at HA, we think, well, this is a native molecule, so there's not going to be a immunogenic component to this. But that is not true as you have. The uh, power is in the experience. So a lot of us, how I got into needling, I saw results and I knew them to be true, even though I didn't think they were possible to begin with. And then once I knew they were true, then I went and pursued why they were true. So now you have experience where people have had problems with 
with HA and you think, well, that's not possible because HA is in our body. Now we're going to react to this stuff. But a good a good analogy would be like a jumbo jet and a fighter jet or airplanes, right? They both have the same name, they're the same thing, yet they have hugely different functions. And so just because HA, low molecular weight versus high molecular weight is HA, doesn't mean to say that all HAs are the same and that they have the same function. And for instance, the jumbo jet is huge and the fighter jet is small and it drops bonds so it's inflammatory. Well, in the, in the same way, a small molecule of low molecular weight HA is designed as a biosignal to induce a whole host of different reactions in the body to that of the molecular size of uh, high molecular weight HA. And so that's where people, you know, they're so focused on, oh, HA is a, is a filler and it is a moisture and all the rest, but they fail to see that it is a biosignaling molecule as well and different sizes do different things. And we know yep. that low molecular weight HA is associated with interleukin 18, which is one of the chemical signaling molecules, if you will, that is associated with dermatitis. So there's adequate science to show low molecular weight is just a bad idea. It causes a multitude of pathologies and is associated with all sorts of cancers and arthritis and, and other diseases. In my opinion, it should just never be applied to the skin, especially after microneedling. Yeah, I actually had a customer where she had laser. She had Italian skin, more like Fitzpatrick 4, and she was referred to me because she ended up with the most severe, would have been like a rosacea mixed with a staph infection. I mean, it was, her skin was just bubbled up and it would just not heal and they just kept saying we'll just keep using the hyaluronic acid taking her off the hyaluronic acid caused it to calm down and then we used some copper peptides to try to heal that down but it just seems like when you're using radiofrequency needles when you're using something that is already compromising the barrier and then you add something like that ha to it it seems like it makes the barrier even worse and it's not till i removed ha that i realized that ha was the problem <laughs> Because we were all told it was great. I just never liked it because in the beginning it was sticky because it's a sugar. So I thought, well, maybe people are breaking out and having problems with it because it's sticky and uh, dirt and the environment sticking to it. And then later, as it got smaller, we, we ran into a lot of issues. People were just super mm. sensitized and always dry. And that gets into a whole different conversation. But in the, the realm of microneedling, it is very present in formulations, which kind of gets into another question that a cu customer has later on, so I'm going to save for that. In the meantime, what are some of the things that people should be looking out for when it comes to microneedling, like all kinds of microneedling? You should watch out for X, like what should their skin be like or not be like? Like what, what, are, what are the things that we should look for and then run away from? How long is your program? <laughs> Let's let's get the highlights. So we we know that you can't have pustular acne. Acne scars fine, pustular acne no. But what what would be some other things you're like? Please do not microneedle. Well, you know, having said that, now I have a feeling that a few years from now, and after we've done a few more studies, that microneedling is actually going to be the core treatment 
or the, the foundational treatment for acne. And everybody is horrified when I say that. And they say, oh, heavens, you're going to take, um, you know, the bacteria and transplant them somewhere else and spread infection. But it's, in life is never as simple as we sometimes think. You know, lawyers love this cause and effect. You poked a hole that they got flesh-eating disease and therefore it was the needle that you poked. And that's not necessarily true. And so there are all sorts of underlying causes of acne, like hyperkeratinization and inflammation, etc. And needling triggers TGFB3, which is anti-inflammatory. Needling normalizes sebum secretion out of the sebicide. Needling downregulates keratinization so you get less hyperkeratinization, which is the underlying cause of acne. Now, I'm not saying that people listening to this program must run out there and start doing this treatment. Certainly, as patients, we have other weapons to counter complications like infections. But I've seen anecdotally some amazing results on patients where it was out of desperation that needling was tried and they, they improved. So I've seen that all around the world where acne has been needled with good results. But we don't have adequate studies really to the general population loose on going to do these treatments. Uh, I'm not saying go and do it. If, if you're a physician, then that's your scope of practice and you probably could do it off-label, so to speak. Having said that, coming back to the original question, I think, the, as I mentioned, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is the biggest problem out there. And a lot of people that are embracing microneedling are higher Fitzpatrick skin types that have acne or acne scarring. And they have to be exceptionally careful as to, A, combining microneedling with other ingredients that are photosensitizers, you know, beta-hydroxy acids and, and things like that or antibiotics that are photosensitizers, tetracycline. Then there are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that are photosensitizers. There are antihistamines that are photosensitizers. So a lot of it is medication. But then it's also what does the patient bring to the table? So you can't really say, oh, well, don't treat this and don't treat that. With microneedling, you're not treating a condition, you're treating a patient and all the complications and uh, nuances that their particular case brings to the table. So one really has to know all the exceptions to the rule in order to practice this safely. So we've gone from I'll just grab a roller and grab a cream and go home and live happily ever after to, hey, this is complex and you need to know what you're doing. And don't cry for me, Argentina, when you step on the landmines because you got your education from somebody on Facebook. <laughs> I think to your point, this is one of the reasons that it should not be a home treatment. There are so many different factors that one has to be educated on. And there's, as you're saying, not one size fits all. Nothing kind of fits in a box. There's a lot of different, as you said, quote, nuances to think about. So the over-the-counter, the only reason I will let my customers do any kind of microneedling, I have actually given them the actual needles and I've given them the instruction on precisely what to do and what to look for and what to not look for. And then also a customer may hold on to their rollers or needles for too long and then they start to get dull and dent and jagged and they don't know when to throw them out. So there's no... Mm -hmm. 
there's no kind of guidelines to any of that, and that's where I think it's unsafe. And you see these articles, especially where they're like, oh, use your microneedle with vitamin C because vitamin C helps build collagen, and most of that vitamin C that's out there is so acidic and not pH balanced that it's giving all these little girls staph infections. I can't tell you how many staph infections I've had to, to deal with from that microneedling, and not just because of the pH of the product, but because people don't know how to cleanse their skin correctly to prepare for microneedling. So there's just so many different aspects to this, which, again, I'm sure is in your book. Is that correct? <laughs> well, maybe to a degree, but what you're, what you're describing there is, you know, there's so many do-it-yourself people that just wing it and haven't got a clue, and obviously you're going to get complications under those circumstances, but certainly... I, in all the years that I promoted uh, home needling in my patients, never had anybody come back to me with an infection. And my primary consultation with the patient is 90 minutes. And part of that is to get a thorough history and do a thorough exam and you know make all the right conclusions. But part of it is the education component where it's totally exhausting. But if you don't yep. do that, A, they don't understand why they need to do it and their compliance goes down, and B, they will go home and do things that are not correct and get infections. Because they read or... about it. I want to make that clear. My, none of my clients had infections. It's They mm-hmm. read something and they decided to pick up a special whatever that they saw, and it's on eBay or Amazon, and they thought, oh, well, I read about it. Mary lets me microneedle anyway, and... <laughs> And then I was like, bam, they've got an issue or uh, a tear. Like I had someone that bought a really expensive roller for the body on and they came in and we were doing something with arms. And I'm like, what are those scratches down your arm? She's like, well, this major plastic surgeon sold me this roller that's $150 that, you know, this massive steel type of, of roller. And she's overusing it and scratching to death her arms. And I'm like, you've got to stop. <laughs> the needles are bad. Again, I personally don't think unless it's under a very watchful eye under certain guidance that a consumer should be doing this at home on their own as in watching YouTube and, and whatnot. Is, is you yeah, with certainly that? IMED gave, gave all my patients um, this treatment. I, I selected them carefully. They had to have the brain cells to be able to understand what, what we were doing. Um, and I, I was always accessible if there were problems. So, uh, yes, there are always problems in anything we do in life. And then people tend to pick up on those problems and blow them out of proportion and write off the whole treatment modality on that basis. Well, let me ask you something that's an easy question. How long do you think people should wait to apply makeup or sunscreen after the microneedling? Well, are we talking medical or home? Both cosmetic now and then also the medical. Also for the listener that's doing this at home that still has no issues, when should they put on sunscreen or do the, the, the makeup and whatnot? What, what, what are good times to do this or not? Well, with the medical, I, I state that people should wait 24 hours to make sure that the, the channels are completely closed before you start applying your sunscreen or your makeup. If you're going for infusion of products um, then at, at home, then you pretty much have to infuse those things within 15 minutes because the holes do close. Now, there's some studies that say it's maybe eight hours or 10 hours, but the majority of the openings are closed within about 15 minutes. So if you're after infusion, that's your window of opportunity. But you certainly don't want to be putting your sunscreen on after 
you've done the home needling. So it's probably better to needle that in the evening and apply your de-aging serums or whatever in the evening and then in the morning you apply your sunscreen or and then your makeup. Right. We're, we're actually on the same page because I do the same thing and I, I actually try to get people to come later to do the microneedle because I'll have the mask to try to close everything down and then I make them go home with the mask and say sit with that a little bit longer so that you're calming it and closing everything down and nice ingredients are penetrating at the same time. I love that confirmation. Thank you. <laughs> what other things would you recommend post-treatment? Well, there are lots of things that I would love to use, but there are not many things that are FDA approved with a, um, with a drug number. So that's why I went for HA and that's not even FDA approved. But the lawyers are going to have a tough time picking you apart for using HA because there are so many safety studies in the realm of injectables. So that, that is a tough one. Until companies go ahead there and do their due diligence, right in our present day and age with the FDA scrutinizing everything and getting more and more restrictions placed upon us, there's not much we can use after the medical microneedling. But then, you know, in my book, I go into the ingredients to use and the ingredients to avoid. And retinol palmitate is a form of vitamin A that I prefer to use with microneedling because it's not as irritating. Magnesium ascorbyl phosphate or sodium ascorbyl phosphate is the form of vitamin C that I prefer. Ascorbyl tetroisopalmitate is a oil-soluble form of vitamin C that has has been associated with granulomas. I'm not convinced necessarily that it is the vitamin C itself. I think it might be the oil coating that enables absorption that is causing the problem. But there needs to be more research on that. Uh, things like green yeah. tea extract are my favorites for antioxidants. Resveratrol is not a bad option. Copper peptides, although having said that, copper and zinc and some of these metals may cause grief in our skin and maybe even granulomas. It's the peptide in the copper peptide that, that has the benefits, not the copper. Niacinamide is, is good. And then, of course, there's ferulic acid and, and all these things that one can use for hyperpigmentation. But anyway, that's quite a detailed question. And oh, sure, I've sure. Developed, <laughs> developed lots of pages in my book to things to include and things to avoid. The things to avoid predominantly are the any product that's got lots of preservatives in it. And in my latest book, I even go into parabens. If you have breast cancer and you have parabens added to the mix, it will actually promote the, the breast cancer cell multiplication. So it's not that the paraben causes the cancer, but if it's present, it will increase cell division. A huge sticking point in the cosmetic industry right now. It's big because we're looking at legislation happening over parabens in California in itself. That that could be a whole other topic I'd love to, to, to discuss with you because I have not seen anything clinically. I know others that are on the, the search for that, and it seems like a lot of this is still in theory. So I would love any kind of link to that that I could also send the, the listeners to? I just got totally obsessed with the paraben story. And oh. um, so I've got pages and pages and even hypotheses of my own that nobody else has thought about. So 
Page 156. Okay. In that, you discuss parabens. I can guarantee you're going to get a lot of press talking to you about this because, again, it's, it's a hot topic, and a lot of people have different theories about it. It's just, again, this is a whole different conversation to have. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll check that out, and I know the listeners are going to be really interested in that. We talked about post-treatment. We talked about parabens. I want to go back to the big concern that I have from the statement about microneedling that causes collagen breakdown, premature aging and possibly cancer that was a woman named Wendy Oriel's claims. She's a cellular biologist. So Wendy Oriel did this interview with the New York Times about what she thought should not be in skincare. And then she added the fact, and she's been very adamant on her blog about microneedle being damaging. And my customers were freaking out and saying, oh my God, are we doing something that's damaging because this is a microbiologist and what's the scoop here? This statement really strikes at the heart of microneedling uh, where the distinctive difference for microneedling versus all other treatment modalities is that it does not result in scar collagen. You know, initially when I heard these comments from others around the world asking me to comment, my response is, well, why do we even need to talk about this? Because there's so much evidence that this has a biological basis for it, you know, the growth factors and cascade pathways, whatever. There are tons of scientific studies countering some of these statements. But then when I read the article, I could see how people could perhaps be intrigued or persuaded by some of these arguments. This is not just this article. The industry as a whole, I've heard other doctors use similar arguments, and it goes something like this. So a wrinkle is caused because of a lack of collagen. And basically, there are three ways that we get depletion of our collagen. It's aging environmental influences like UV, smoking, etc., and then mechanical wear and tear. And in that article you mentioned, they use an example of a T-shirt as an inanimate object where after 30 years, the one that is worn shows the signs of wear and tear and the one that was put away and never, never worn is in pretty good shape. And people get that analogy in that we do wear out as time goes on. But the problem with that analogy where I object to it is that it promotes the idea that our body wears out to the point where we are unable to produce collagen anymore. That is not true. We have regenerative capabilities as opposed to a t-shirt. The other thing is we really need to define a lot of things that are not defined in that article. For instance, what are we talking about when we say dermarolling? That's just a generic term for a treatment modality that has many applications and occurs at many different depths. So are we talking cosmetic or are we talking medical? If we're talking cosmetic, then the needles are not reaching down into the collagen and tearing it up and destroying it, as the article um, implies. And we're not killing cells because we're not going down into the dermis. If we're talking medical, well, then, yes, some of those assertions are correct, but out of context. Because, for instance, we do break down uh, collagen with medical microneedling, but that triggers a cascade of uh, collagen induction through stimulation and attraction of fibroblasts to the area to make new collagen. 
and there's TGFB3 involved with that, which is non-inflammatory and therefore results in non-scar tissue. So a lot of these comments, when they refer to needling causes scarring, well, yes, maybe it would if it was incorrectly done and there was too aggressive a treatment at too deep a depth and too frequent combined with PRP or chemical peels. But if done appropriately, scar collagen does not occur. And then the other thing is to refer to things as skin cells. I know the blog probably meant to explain things to non-medical people and therefore one has to simplify things a bit. But in that oversimplification, it just omits too much information that is necessary to draw the correct conclusions in all of this. So, for instance, there's a big emphasis on fibroblasts being the producer of collagen. Now, I talked earlier that keratinocytes also produce collagen. But the, the cornerstone to this, would, this article would be that there's the Hayflick phenomenon where fibroblasts are able to divide up to 50 times and then they're done and collagen yep. production ceases. So that is basing an argument on the fact that we have a finite amount of fibroblasts. Well, we don't have a finite amount. And if you do the math on that, in chick embryos, the fibroblast lifespan is about 60 days or two months. So if we do 60 times 50 or two months times 50, we've got about eight years and, and a little bit of change. So if one takes this hypothesis, then at eight years old, we're done. We're not, we're not going to have cells. We're, we're in big trouble. And we know that that's not true from real life. So how do we explain you know, if, and, and her, her claim there is that by needling, you're inducing the need for subdivision of cells sooner. Therefore, you run through your 50 kicks at the can and you reach kicking the can far sooner. And so how do you explain that? Well, fibroblasts are not finite. They are mesenchymal in origin. And as, they, as the old ones die, new ones are brought to the scene. But the other thing is people often assume that the fibroblast, once it's had its 50 divisions, it dies. Well, no, it doesn't. It just changes its cell function. And we know that we get older, we have less collagen. And one would think, well, it's because the fibroblast lost the plot and, and doesn't know how to produce collagen anymore. But it's actually not because of lack of fibroblast function to produce the collagen, they, when they go into senescence, they don't die, they just take on a different function, if you will, where they now start secreting enzymes that break collagen down. So it's not due to a, a lack of collagen production in older people that we see less collagen. It's because of an increase in collagen degradation from the MMPs that senescent fibroblasts secrete. So that's a lesson known fact. So you see, it's pretty complex and one can't oversimplify. Otherwise, you're just going to admit relevant pieces of information that counter what is being said here. In the beginning, I was definitely going over a millimeter with the rollers, and I've had customers that have been doing it now into about 15 years. And those customers, I tell them, I said, everywhere that you've seen me roll and then where I've stopped, I said, look at where your skin has aged significantly where I'm not rolling, and especially like 
behind the neck, even where the sun is not even exposing. And I said, look where we have rolled. I said, you're not only younger, you're younger than we first met. There's definitely mm-hmm. something rejuvenating, I think, within being conservative about the damage that we're creating to create that kind of effect, if you want to put it that way. So I, I like that you've got at least double the time that I have working with this. I was obsessed with product penetration at one point, And then I realized, you know what, I care about what happens afterwards. And for, to me, it was more about the, the needle than itself, which goes into some other questions in a minute again. What I, I wanted to cover, though, is the fact that there is an alarming trend, and I keep seeing it in my social media and so on, and I've also covered this with uh, my microblading person, my expert, and it's the BB Glow, which is a microneedling service where you tattoo BB cream into the skin, and the skin is supposed to appear flawless. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. about that? Go to my blog and look at at why we should not do BB cream. I mean, I think I wrote a eleven page article on that. Um, so again, it was why why do we even need to discuss this? But then the questions just kept <laughs> coming, and there's all sorts of scientific evidence to show that this is a bad idea. From depositing foreign material there on a larger scale than the permanent makeup artists are doing with lips and eyeliners and dermablading for eyebrows, we're depositing masses and masses of foreign material. And then they say, oh, no, but it's just superficial and it's not penetrating. Well, if you wash your face that afternoon and it doesn't come off, well, then it did penetrate. And... People think that because it doesn't go into the dermis that there's not going to be an immune response, but that's not correct either. And then there's the risk of, okay, now you've got pigmented molecules sitting in the skin and you go and have an IPL or some heat treatment, which is going to absorb heat and change the way you need to adjust your settings. And then if you go for an MRI, that's going to cause charges, uh, changes in electrical charges on these molecules and create heat to the point of burning. And then if you do certain lasers, that is going to induce a change in the color of the pigment. So you can end up with black pigment in the skin. So there are just a multitude of, you know, from inducing immune response that causes inflammation, that causes premature aging, that is the underlying cause of skin cancers potentially, etc., It's a multitude of reasons not to do this. Everyone, you're listening to a doctor say it's not a good idea for the BB Glow. Just get a good foundation, right? (laughs) Or just microneedle. It looks gorgeous, but stop being lazy. Just put the BB Glow on the intact skin and look gorgeous that way. Don't compromise your health for the sake of a short-term solution that needs to be repeated fairly often. And the more repeated, the greater the chance of a reaction. You might not get a reaction the first time. People always point to, oh, I've been doing this on so many people and they never got a reaction. Some of the reactions that you're seeing are not macroscopic, they're microscopic, and so you don't you don't see an outward appearance of or evidence of it. Well, I have my listener questions, and we have Elizabeth in New York who wants to know which is more effective for her forehead lines and age spots, Fraxel or microneedling? Hmm. Botox. <laughs> 
the problem with wrinkles is it depends on the strength of the muscle that's in play. And if you do a lot of raising of your eyebrows and are always alarmed or um, shocked at life, then those muscles are going to break down the collagen induction as fast as you're making it. So in a way, just like when you break your arm, you need to put a splint on to allow the bone to grow. You need to Botox the forehead first and then microneedle, and that will allow the collagen to fill in eventually. Fraxel, you know, I, I never did Fraxel treatments in my own clinic, but a lot of my patients that came to see me were Fraxel failures, and I understand it's quite painful, it's expensive, and it's not as effective. Now, you may get more tightening of the skin with heat-induced treatments just because the protein denatures and therefore causes a tightening, but you're compromising physiological function of the skin for the sake of an appearance. And like I said, 20, 30 years from now, you're just left with the scar tissue and it ain't going to be pretty. I've never seen a long-term great outcome from it. I think when they were trying to compare two different modalities, they were trying to see what was better. Thank you, Elizabeth, for that question. We have Mary Jan in New York who gets microneedling with PRP. She wants to know what you think about PRP and microneedling. She said several doctors are offering the service now for about $2,500 and she wants to know if it will really make that much of a difference versus using a vitamin C or other product with microneedling. Okay, so again, how long is the program? I've got a huge section on PRP. (laughs) PRP took months of my life. And I was going to be a big PRP cheerleader. When I heard about this years and years ago, I thought, this is is it. Now we've, we've got something great. When I started researching for my book, and this is not just my opinion, this is tons and tons of abstracts that I read over time. The evidence is just not there. You might find one or two articles here and there out of hundreds, if not thousands of abstracts, but the evidence does not support the claim or the hypothesis. And there are a number of reasons why, but the short answer to that is that PRP is an accelerant It's not an enhancer. So you will get a result quicker if PRP is combined. But like I always say, you know, pick an ugly city. If you drive there or when you fly there, when you get to that city, it's still ugly. If you use PRP, you're flying there, you get there. The city is still the same as if you drive there. So the end result is the same. And it makes sense scientifically as well if you really think about it. And therefore, save your 2500 bucks and rather buy skincare products to nurture and, and nourish the cells along the way. And a lot of these studies will you know, show needling and needling combined with PRP and the results are identical. So it's not just my opinion. It's proven by studies as well. And I've been trying to study it too because I know I've had customers that have seen some doctors in New York City. And I, I told them, I said, you know, the results are really nice. I said, there's, there's nothing. I don't see any inflammation or anything that's crazy happening in the skin. I said, but I feel like you're going to get the same thing when you come to see me. It's just you got it a little bit faster, but you ended up kind of in the same place. That's interesting that you're saying that as well. And the other thing that I thought was fascinating is that many years ago, this this was at least 10 years ago, I was at a medical show and one of the higher, we'll say, radio frequency devices that was very hot at the time, they were, they were over 25 degrees Celsius, and they were starting the whole vampire facelift with PRP and all of that and combining it with fillers because they said, you know what, 
we had the machines too hot. They noticed that it was taking out the fat in people's faces. So they combined mm. saying that we're going to add this PRP because it's going to make you even younger with this treatment, but you weren't really going to see anything from the PRP. So <laughs> that's why they had to combine it with a filler to make you perceive that the PRP was going to do something. So it just seems like we're kind of in a little bit of a mess right now. <laughs> the, the marketing machine has taken taken this to new heights along with all the celebrities that brag about you know the benefits of it. But at the end of the day, a lot of people on and a lot of positions are not doing it anymore because they're not getting the results, and then their name gets trashed on Yelp, etc. For me, it's how do I get the best results for the least amount of money? And that's why I chose microneedling as a foundation for my practice is because it's, it's lower risk than all these other treatment modalities and it's more affordable for the patients and they get great results if they patient over time. Yeah. I agree. Well, I have a final question that's actually from a pro. I don't know where she's from, but it's Caitlin who said she's been giving microneedling treatments to her customers for over five years now, but she noticed some people are reacting to the numbing cream. Can you get better results if you don't use a numbing cream? It's not better. Well, I suppose what she's saying is if the patient is in pain, then I'm not going to do an adequate treatment and therefore I'm going to get worse results. And I think it's Australia where they're not allowed to use, estheticians are not allowed to use numbing cream at all. And and that's because of sensitization. And I think we, over time, as we start selling packages of come and get your 10 microneedling treatments, and now you've got 10 applications of numbing cream, there are going to be more and more allergic reactions to to these creams. And there are one of the, there's one, one device in particular which is not approved in the U.S., but which I love, and I can do a treatment in about five to seven minutes without numbing cream. And so it's not nearly as painful. The motor is potent. There's a different configuration of needles, which is probably why it doesn't hurt as much. So I think, you know, the Devices are going to improve with time. Certainly rollers are really quite painful without the numbing cream. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're worried about numbing, then you're going to have to go to a really strong motor. Don't go as deep. You don't need to go down to blood level to get these results. And uh, don't make as many passes. I agree. Is there something that you do or that you can advise that has maybe even nothing to do with microneedling? It's kind of your like beauty hack. Well, I know in my own practice, I didn't used to sell supplements except for omega-3s. And without omega-3, your cell membrane function is going to be deficient. And I noticed in my patients, if I didn't put them on enteric-coated omega-3s, um, they had more blackheads, they had more milia, and their results were just not as oh. good. So there, you know, even an acne patient, you put them on omega-3s after three months, you're going to see an improvement in their acne, even if you do nothing else. So for 20 bucks a month, you can go a long way to boosting your skin Amazing. That is a really good beauty hack. <laughs> well, we can't possibly cover everything there is to know about microneedling. I'm, I'm going to direct everyone to your book, The Concise Guide to Dermal Needling. And I want to thank you for taking your time out for your insanely busy schedule to help us clear up some misinformation circulating about microneedling and hopefully making everyone's skin a bit safer. Well, thanks, Mary, for allowing me the opportunity to clarify some of these issues and it's all about education and the more we know the better job we can do so 
Thanks so much for allowing me on your show. Our journey has drawn to a close. I hope you've enjoyed this latest edition of Beauty GPS in the Raw. There's no question microneedling is effective in the right hands. Make sure to see a seasoned pro to get the best and safest results. Be especially careful what you microneedle into the skin to reduce your chance of scarring, hyperpigmentation, or other detrimental skin conditions. For more information, please visit beautygps.com. Meanwhile, we'll catch you next Saturday at noon with our next special guest expert to take on your burning beauty and wellness questions live. Beauty GPS is copyright 2019. All rights reserved.